This podcast is brought to you by EnergyX. Are you tired of paying huge rates to the big cloud providers? Are you worried about being booted off a cloud platform if your company doesn't meet their ever-shifting standards? Ready to step up your data security and disaster recovery game? Well, ladies and gentlemen, your new cloud is ready. Introducing xCloud, the scalable, resilient computing cloud that is also actually affordable. It's high-performance compute for half the cost. HPC for HTC. xCloud from Red Team is opening a beta program for new cloud computing customers, and that means you, my friend. The xCloud is powered by the XMDC Immersion Cooled Modular Data Center from EnergyX. I've seen this data center in operation, and it is a total game changer. So if you want more information about the beta launch, go to the URL in the description. Type in promo code BETA, B-E-T-A, for 50% off of your first instance. And so the URL is going to be digitalwildcutters.com forward slash energy. X. This is the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. Brandon, tell me real quick, you know, what is Xtreme of? It's actually pretty cool, man. I was there, you know, when uh, in the in the early days when you're talking about doing it and uh, been a little bit quiet about about building it. And so now you're coming on the show and and talking about it. So one, uh, appreciate you coming here and taking the time. But tell me what you're working on. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me, Colin. Um, so Extreme Lift is uh, it's kind of bridges the gap between artificial lift and and compression. And so what we do, and I'll get into the specifics a little bit later, but what we do is we build these high pressure gas lift units um, that are used for gas lift, um, don't need any valves down hole. And this technology, um, it, it, helps, it, it helps you get more production than any other artificial lift method on the market. And it's like the simplest thing that you could even think of. You brought me these stickers that says 4,000 PSI straight up your annulus um <laughs> this is a good this is a good sticker yeah uh, we need to we need to talk about that a little bit we're, we're gonna dive into this because you know i'm not a production guy so we're gonna strip it down to some of the basics of artificial lift but you know tell me a little bit about your your background you know you're uh you've been working in artificial lift and production all of your career i am i right on that yeah yeah so uh i grew up in calgary um got a degree in mechanical engineering in the US and then went back and forth. Uh, it was kind of during the, you know, 2008 financial crisis that I was going to school. And, but the oil and gas business in Canada was doing really well at the time. Um, so I was working in Canada, going to school in the US, kind of going back and forth. Um, interned with Canadian Natural Resources up in Fort McMurray in the mm -hmm. oil sands. Uh, did an eight month co-op term with them. And then when I was graduating, I interviewed with a lot of different companies. Um, and one of them was EOG. And uh, I, I interviewed with them in the U.S. And they were always looking for Canadians to send up to their, their Canadian division. <laughs> and when I talked to the Canadian guys, they basically had this little, um, this little field in uh, Waskata, Manitoba, which is like 15 minutes away from the U.S. border to North Dakota. 140 people in this town and no one wanted to move there <laughs> so they found me and asked me if i wanted to move there and i kind of snuck in the back door at eog kind of non-traditionally yeah um, didn't go through like the big you know uh internship like two internships and all that stuff they they just i said i'd move to this little town no one else wanted to move to and i moved there so they needed a warm body in this in this small town, and you're willing to do it. <laughs> exactly. So uh, it was a field of like 700 rod pump wells. Um, you know, I spent a little bit of time in the office in Calgary, and then they moved me out to uh, this little town um, in the middle of nowhere. I actually had to go across the border into North Dakota to go to Walmart. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> you had to go into a whole other yeah, country. Yeah, I had to go through the border crossing <laughs> to go get my groceries every week. And I even had a P.O. box in North Dakota to get Amazon packages because yeah. I couldn't get them to my house in uh, in this little what, town. Uh, what town in North Dakota did you have to go to? Uh, Botno. Okay. Um, yeah, that's uh, 
I mean, I've been to North Dakota several times and, you know, up there you can get in the middle of nowhere, you know, pretty, pretty Dude, quick. And having lived up in those remote places and even now I live in Midland now, but you, you spend time in these places. You're like, how did people homestead these places? Yeah. No, like, I, mean, I have no idea how people survive. That was my biggest takeaway when I spent a month on the North Slope of Alaska. I was like, how do the Inuits live up here? I was like, it doesn't make any fucking sense yeah. to me how humans were able to do that and yeah you i I don't think most of society i I think it's something that we're privileged to working in oil and gas that you truly get to be out in the middle of nowhere Mm -hmm. and gives you kind of perspective it's always in the extremes like either like negative 40 or colder (laughs) or like 110 or hotter what i've learned is that we never drill for oil in nice places you know it's always extremely harsh but even you know in texas man you know i'd spend time out in the eagleford and you know i'm two hours away from pavement on the mexican border Mm -hmm. i mean even in just our home state i'm like dude you can get out in the middle of fucking nowhere and you know parts of west texas we'll think about anywhere between pecos and carlsbad man yeah i mean that's (laughs) yeah so um you know that's that's funny that you can kind of paint it in that extreme yeah. it's like i had to drive to a whole nother country and go through border yeah. crossing to even get groceries. exactly <laughs> um and so uh started my career up there field-based production engineer they handed me three workover rigs and said here you go i had no idea what i was doing <laughs> the company men would call me and be like hey wells on a vac you know this is what's happening all this it was just little rod jobs but you know three thousand foot deep three thousand foot laterals so six thousand kind of yeah td wells uh and uh and i just learned by by doing i mean that's how i learned i wasn't fantastic at school i spent all my time in college in the math tutoring lab yeah (laughs) um but i i got through it and so i just learned real well hands-on and i've been fortunate that i've always been kind of field-based in my positions and been able to touch things and see things and be on the rig and all that stuff so i kind of yeah that's that's how i learned the best which is actually that's an interesting point because you know the time that you came in the industry you know it's kind of the rise of shell Mm -hmm. and horizontal and you had a lot of engineers that i mean companies like pioneer and eog were catering to engineering students coming out of school right and kind of bypass that field experience which is kind of like an old school thing of Mm -hmm. like you're an engineer you go out to the field but I'm just a big believer that that hands-on seeing it Dude. like you know sorry for all the engineers out there but you know what you learn in school it, it's completely different than what happens out in the field yeah, and actually no, seeing it there's no parallel for real world yeah seeing and touching things yeah so it sounds like you know you're you're fortunate in, yep. in that aspect and you know i love that you ate glass for eat shit whatever you want to say whatever you're eating whatever you're eating but to go up there when no one else wants to i mean that's where the opportunity's at right it's, yeah, and, is is and doing the stuff that no one else wants to so i so eog then moved me down to north dakota um it was a moving south for me um there's a lot of uh you know how these uh a lot of these a&m kids come out of college and the first thing they do is get married between when they when they graduate and when they start their jobs yeah and uh uh, to put it there, a lot of wives from Texas, from A&M weren't happy up in North Dakota. Mm-hmm. So they sent, uh, they sent some Canadians down to North Dakota where, uh, we were a little bit more used to the weather. Yeah. Um, <laughs> more acclimated yeah, to spent about five years with the OG up in that, up in that area, doing a lot of really cool things. Um, and I got really, again, that was field-based. I mean, I was in the Stanley office right in the middle of the wells. I had a big group of wells that I was in charge of back then it was when um the Bakken was absolutely blown and going yeah like it was before it was busier than the Permian was at the time um yeah in in like the early 2010s right yeah and so I got to see a lot of action and a lot of stuff really quick um we were using a lot of ESPs at the time I got my hands on ESPs I'd some really good mentors at EOG and also just a lot of wells and a lot of activity. So I saw like the volume of stuff I saw was so much so fast. Yeah. Cause we were, you know, in my area, I was doing 60 new drills a year or something just in my one area. Right. Yeah. And we had, you know, hundreds of ESPs in the field and I kind of 
took interest in that, took it upon myself to like become good at that and become a technical expert for ESPs. And so um, that's kind of where this, actually this high pressure gas lift journey started because ESPs are like super, super, they're, they, they're good at producing a lot of fluid mm -hmm. and getting really good drawdown, but they're really complicated electromechanical machines and have thousands and thousands of moving parts. And you basically plug in like, you set it 10,000 feet deep and plug in a 10,000 foot extension cord to surface, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> and there's, these wells are so much that can go wrong. Um, and it's harsh conditions, right? Like you have your, your wellbore deviations from drilling these long reach laterals and trying to get your well spacing on from like a multi-well pad and getting your well spacing down hole. And you got like, you're producing massive amount of sand and solids. Yeah. And especially in the Bakken, like it's naturally fractured up there and those wells just seem to give up so much sand for such yeah. a long time. Yeah. Um, and then your GORs are constantly going up and like, we're talking about remote, always drilling in remote places. Like the electrical infrastructure isn't good. Yeah. And the first word in electric submersible pumps is electric. Right. <laughs> so, uh, so like power quality isn't good, but, but everybody uses and still use ESPs because they're really good at moving a, a ton of fluid yeah. really fast. Right. Well, you know, that's something I'd actually didn't appreciate until last year. And, uh, oh, actually I think it was Dom, uh, that was talking about, it was talking about quality of power mm -hmm. and I didn't, I didn't realize or appreciate how much production engineers within these EMPs understood or were paying attention to electricity quality coming from um you know a substation mm -hmm. and uh, that's something that i don't think is like super appreciated yeah. we're of. doing especially with esps dude at when i was in north dakota when we'd have like a bunch of esps go down and we'd start them all back out the town of partial would would have a voltage sag and people like <laughs> people had gen sets because we were pulling so much power in the oil field wow. from ESPs when when you'd bring a bunch online yeah. at, at a time. That's insane. So let's let's take a pause here real quick and let's do some oil and gas 101 for everyone out there. You know, um, obviously have a lot of production engineers here that know what an ESP is and how it functions and operates, but I have a lot of people, you know, from downstream, midstream that don't. Um, can you just give us a high level overview of how a ESP actually works? Yeah. So, so an ESP is a centrifugal pump. Basically it's kind of like if you have a turbo in your car, that little impeller in your turbo that gives you your boost, that's a, that's a ESP stage basically. So what you do is you take those stages and you stack hundreds of them on top of each other. So, so the different components, you have your pumps like starting from the top down um, on your downhole stuff, right? You have all your, your, your pumps, which are made of ESP stages. And like I said, you have hundreds of them because each one of those stages produces so much head to lift fluid. And if you're 10,000 feet down, you need to add enough to get 10,000 feet of lift to get mm -hmm. lift to surface, right? Mm -hmm. And then um, um, below that, you have like your intake and your gas separator where fluid comes in. And of course, these wells produce oil and gas, so you have to have some sort of separation mechanism to try to get as much gas out of there. Because if you get too much gas in, in an ESP, it's like when you're making a protein shake or making a smoothie in your blender, and you know it sucks in a, a pocket of air, and then it spins real fast, and, and it doesn't blend anything. That's essentially what gas lock is inside an ESP when you get too much gas in there, where it'll... It, you won't be moving fluid through there and that that pocket of gas will make it so it spins and it's not actually doing any work right and then you get to overheating and things like that and burning up motors and, yeah and then underneath your intake and your gas separators you have your protector or your seal and what that is that's a barrier between uh, where your fluid comes into the pump and then your electrical motor because you know electricity doesn't like being in water water right so your downhole submerged in water and you have to separate and make sure, you know, your wellbore fluid doesn't get into your motor and, and contaminate your motor. So you have a, a protector or sometimes called a seal that has a bunch of chambers that filled with oil and that communicates with the motor oil to make it so that it's really hard for wellbore fluid to make it into the motor and short out the motor. 
and then uh, you have a plug-in to your to your ESP called a pothead, and uh, that plugs the cable in basically a however deep your well is, six thousand foot, ten thousand foot extension cord to surface. And then on the bottom of the motor, you have a sensor that measures the temperature of your motor, the temperature of the fluid, and the bottom hole pressure. Um, yeah, to your to your point, I mean, you can tell this is a complicated piece of machinery, and it's ran down, you know, ten thousand feet. And these in the strings ground are and, fifty to hundred and one hundred and fifty to one hundred and seventy five foot long, and each component is no longer than twenty or thirty feet, right? Yeah. So you're on the rig floor making, you know lots of connections like yeah. the motor itself is because electric motors uh increase with horsepower uh in diameter like the they increase uh in horsepower like squared in diameter but in a five and a half casing well five and a half 20 pound casing well where you have 4.78 id like 4.65 drift mm -hmm. i mean you're talking about a 4.5 inch motor yeah right and in order to get the horsepower you need like you need 400 horsepower for some of these new wells so you just got to stack a bunch of them you have <laughs> two 30 foot motors you're putting on top of each other right with all the electrical connections that have to go together just right on a rig floor in the middle of north dakota and negative 40 or in the middle of west texas at 110 when a haboob's coming in <laughs> yeah. right and and so like the brick floor is not the cleanest place yeah, either. So yeah. you have like all these electrical connections and you're making connections to mechanical and electrical connections, like five, six, seven, eight of these connections to stack up this string yeah. that's 150 feet long or sometimes 175 feet long, not even counting the bottom hole assembly or whatever sand protection you put on top of it. Yeah. And then you're running in on tubing and spooling the cable and spooling chemical injection line while you're running in and either banding it to the to the tubing or you're clamping it and just there are so many quality things like so many things that can get damaged or nicked yeah that can uh reduce the reliability and runtime of the ESP that you really have to do everything really really prudently and really right and follow procedures to get the best chance for it to to run the longest and and in the oil field that's not always the case right <laughs> it's it's never the case no. so you so know, like, that, that's actually fascinating to me because i've never um seen an esp assembled and you know i spent a lot of my life on workover rigs and running tools but i've never actually seen an esp built and so having you articulate this i'm like that sounds like a nightmare to be doing that um and even if everything goes right you know just downhole conditions are rough mm -hmm. and um and so, you know, to kind of illustrate this for everyone, you know, what you're talking about with the uh, horsepower and, and, and ID of the casing issue, it's like your casing's downhole. You have whatever ID you have, that's what mm -hmm. you have to work with. And, you know, you're talking about, you know, fitting something that's four and a half inch and a, you know, 4.75 ID. I mean, that's not a lot of space in that annulus. No. To, and then you're running cables and things of this nature. And so, you know, things get nicked up. And so, um, yeah, that's just, I didn't realize that it was that delicate and intricate of a process to assemble those and actually get them down hole and, and working. So yep. that's, um, no, thanks for, for sharing that. And so, um, all right. So when little, little was, side tangent from your I, story, but that was yeah. great. So Thank I was you at for... EOG. I was doing a lot of ESP stuff. Like I became one of the, you know, for the Denver division, one of the, you know, the ESP guys um, there and, and uh, traveled around to a lot of the, you know, all, all over North America, all the ESP shops doing, you know, quality stuff, teardowns, um, you know, audits, designs, all that stuff. And so it, when you're, if, so all the production engineers will will uh, appreciate this. When you're a production engineer, you're always getting pressure from management to produce more, right? Mm -hmm. We want more production, yeah. But you're also getting pressure to spend less money, yeah. And usually those things, those two things, can generally they go in the opposite direction. If you're trying to produce more, you end up spending more money. If you try to, if you want to spend less, you're gonna produce less. So you're always trying to find like especially with ESP reliability and how expensive they are. Like these are hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, when you buy one plus your workover costs and all that stuff. So, mm -hmm. so you're always playing this game of like, okay, we want to change artificial lift types. So 
will go from ESP to gas lift and then, or ESP to rod pump. And, and you're constantly trying to use these other artificial lift types to get a lower cost profile than your ESP, but still match the production. And it's very hard to do unless your well's down at 500 barrels a day already or yeah. under a under thousand barrels a day. Yeah. And so we were trying to go to gas lift and conventional gas lift just couldn't get us there, right? So we're trying to figure out a way to, uh, a way to, you know, get away from ESPs, but not sacrifice on the production. Yeah, yeah. You wanted your cake and, and to eat it <laughs> yeah, too. Yeah, exactly. Go into gas lifts a little bit and give us a rundown like you just did on ESPs, on gas lift, and why you guys were trying to go to that. Sounds like a cost basis. Yeah, so, so gas lift is generally on, on the capital side, uh, you spend all your money on surface, on like uh, injection lines and compression and everything. But on the OPEX side, it's extremely cheap. All you have is tubing in the hole, right? Just think about tubing. Sometimes you'll have a packer down the hole. Sometimes it'll be packerless and you'll put uh, gas lift valves in there. And basically gas lift valves are these uh, little points of entry down the, down the tubing string that are spaced out and they're pressurized so that they open and close at a certain pressure. And then you get a compressor and you inject gas generally down the casing side, the annulus between the tubing and the casing, and down into one of these valves. And depending on how it was designed, um, it's, it's designed to get it like in the top valve and as your bottom hole pressure uh, decreases, then that top valve closes and forces the gas down to the next valve. And then your bottom hole pressure decreases as you produce more barrels and then that valve closes and you work your way down, down your valve string or down your, your tubing string on your valves. Um, and then all you really have is tubing that your production is going up. So it doesn't matter if you're producing sand, doesn't matter if you're producing plug parts, doesn't matter. The more gas the well produces, the better, right? So you're not fighting gas like you are in ESP. Yeah. And then if your well's deviated, it doesn't matter because you don't have cable in the hole. You don't have really have anything anything it's much more of a mechanical system yeah fewer points of exactly failure. so yeah actually gas lift does really well in all these areas that where all these tough things that unconventional wells throw at you right like everything that esp is weak at gas lift is does great but the problem with gas lift is you can never get especially on new wells it's really hard to get the same production as esps and the the, there's two reasons. The first reason is you're limited on your injection depth. So traditional compression is limited to roughly 1200 PSI um, injection pressure, sometimes as high as 1400, but the rule of thumb is generally 1200 PSI. Okay. And it's my opinion, this is just me, like gas lift valves exist because compression falls, traditionally has falls, fallen short. So on a high bottom hole pressure well, you get a compressor, it outputs 1200 PSI, and say you can only get, force your way a quarter of the way down the hole, right? Mm -hmm. With Because the bottom hole pressure is too high to get all the way down. Yeah. So that's where you put a gas lift valve, and then you just work your way down from there. Yeah. So gas lift works by lightening the fluid column. So you inject gas into, that, into the tubing, and it reduces the density of the, the fluid in that tubing. So the well, the pressure of the well can flow it on its own. And then as the bubbles rise and they expand, there's some lift lifting effect there as well. But think about you have like a 10,000 foot deep well and you're only lightening, reducing the density of like the top 2,500 feet. That's what conventional gas lift does. Mm -hmm. And then conventionally you're injecting down the casing and producing up the tubing. And that two and seven eighths tubing on the inside is only like 2.4, you know, 2.441 id and so it's really small like take a tape measure and measure out 2.4 mm -hmm. inch uh radius or diameter and there's not a lot of flow area there and so what also happens is you bump up against hydraulic friction where the friction in the tubing once you get to a certain flow rate is so high that you can't get above that flow rate it's like terminal velocity falling down a plane with wind resistance right like you hit a certain velocity and due to wind resistance, you just stay at that velocity. Um, with, with conventional gas lift up tubing, you hit like hydraulic friction limitations and you can't produce more than that because the friction, the dominant force is friction. 
Yeah. And so you're limited by both injection depth and friction. Yeah. So that's. So with conventional gas lift system, you're essentially going and doing it in sections through these valves, you yep. know, 2,500 feet, 2,500 feet, whatever that yeah. interval is. Yeah. And um, so this parlays into what you're doing with extreme lift, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just going to take a, take a guess here. You saw this issue <laughs> and said, hey, um, it sounds like to you, you're like the actual problem is on the compression um, side and not having enough force. And then I'm also, you know, 4,000 PSI straight up your annulus. I'm like, all right, <laughs> kind of start connecting the dots and yeah. seeing where this is going. And so, um, what was, what was your take on solving, solving? Yeah. The so issue? I, I can't take full credit for coming up with the idea. So but what happened was, uh, when I was at EOG, they were really good at facilitating, uh, cooperation over the entire company. Mm -hmm. And so we would get together like every year, um, um, as like production engineers from all the different divisions, um, the different basins around the U S and in Canada. And we would like have like a week long or three day workshop on some topic. And it was usually some topic that one specific, uh, division was strong at. Right. And we mm -hmm. have in that division. So one year in the Denver division where we ran a lot of ESPs in the Bakken, we had a three day workshop on ESPs and we would have like a ESP training from some you know technical professional that trained us on esp stuff and then we would uh present to each other and share what we were each doing in our respective areas and kind of brainstorm and and uh, learn from each other and you know all those things and mm -hmm. so another one we had was rod pumps early in the eagleford's life they would run a lot of rod pumps we had a rod pump one in the eagleford and in 2015 around just i think just before christmas 2015 uh, we had one in Tyler, Texas, and it was around gas lift. And so really that, that, that workshop meeting was the, was the genesis of high, high pressure gas lift today, where we all got together and we were, we were presenting to each other the issues we were having with ESPs, like in the Denver division, we were or with gas lift in the Denver division, we were trying to go from ESP to gas lift and couldn't get the rates. You know, Barnett was doing, had these older, uh, you know, Barnett wells that were low pressure and they were able to not run any valves and do poor boy gas, gas lift around the end of tubing. And then you had, you know, the Eagleford that was moving away from rod pumps and going to gas lift and was having, you know, gas lift valve failure issues and things. Then you had the Permian that was just starting to blow up and, and they were doing gap along old wells and other things. So we're all talking to each other and presenting to each other and brainstorming together. And, uh, and basically what came out of that meeting was if we had compression with higher discharge pressure and um oh and 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 tyler texas was was had these new buddha wells that were pretty good wells and they were doing annular gas lifts so injecting down the tubing producing up the casing and so we we, we kind of put all these things together as a group and we're like man if we just had enough compression like high enough discharge pressure that we didn't have to use any gas lift valves, then we would get rid of any issues with gas lift valves. Then if we could produce, go down the tubing, produce up the casing, then we'd get monster rates because you'd get rid of that friction because in the casing, that casing area between your tubing and casing is almost three times bigger than up your tubing. So you get rid of any friction limitations. And so through that brainstorming, all these things came about. And so we each went back to our respective divisions and solicited compression companies to build compressors and almost nobody wanted to do it. Oh, really? Yeah. Why do you think that was? Uh, traditionally, compression likes to, uh, they like to build units that won't sit in the yard if they don't have an application. Mm -hmm. So they build things that will work in a lot of different scenarios, right? So something, the same machine they might be able to use for gas lift going to multiple and sending gas to multiple pads as in like a gas plant or for midstream right like mm -hmm. they don't want it in the yard eating grass yeah they want a general use compression system that and, they can utilize yeah. across different assets and in the industry the downhole gas lift guys and the compression guys don't talk mm. like there is no service company that does both right like the downhole gas lift guys just say, give me 
gas, give me compression, tell me what it's going to be. Tell me the injection rate and the pressure and I'll design for that. And the compressor guys are like, just tell me where to drop this unit off. And if it's not on skid, I don't care about it. All I care about is what's on my skid and that's what I deal with. The uh, opportunity always sits at the intersection of things. And I see this all the time yeah. in different businesses. And so it's a really interesting intersection right there's got these two parties and they don't talk to each other and don't understand you know yeah. the each side of the i gotta i gotta go on a small tangent real quick you mentioned eog's buddha wells did you ever see our podcast episode buddha I listened, back in the I day listened to that. <laughs> if you if you go search eog buddha like <laughs> digital wildcatters comes up it's a now that you mentioned that, it's just further evidence that he's sitting on a huge uh, Buddha play. But I have no insider knowledge. I haven't worked for them for yeah. like this is, this seven is, years. This is Brandon's uh, yeah. disclaimer. So uh, with Extreme, are you guys building the compressors? Um, tell me, you know, like what what the actual product and services? Yeah. So we build this uh, booster compressor. Okay. So. Uh, it's a, uh, it's just a small gas of compressor, 3306 NA engine, which is a pretty normal size for a single well gas lift, right? Um, but we uh, engineer it in a way where we take, we take the discharge pressure gas from your conventional compression at like a thousand pounds or 1200 pounds, and we can boost that up to over 4,500 pounds. So you're actually you stacking this up with conventional exactly. uh, compression systems. Yeah. Okay, yeah, cool. exactly. Cool. Um, so for y'all, you know, from a business model perspective, um, you know, you go, I'm assuming that you work with the EMPs directly in their engineering yes, teams. Exactly. Yeah. So, so, uh, so to back up a little bit, um, I left EOG shortly after, like in 2017, I left EOG. We had done some high pressure gas of pilots with a couple companies that decided to, you know, try this out and build a few of them. And, uh, uh, SM poached me and brought me down to Midland right when they bought that, um, Howard and Martin County stuff. Mm -hmm. And so when I was interviewing for that job, I had mentioned this high pressure gas lift stuff that was really, really nascent. And there's some interest from, from my boss who ended up being my boss, um, uh, Nathan Loma over there. And so that's something that we, we attacked and, and wanted to do at SM, um, as they developed this field because we started with i walked in there they had 30 wells 30 horizontal wells by the time i left it was over 330 mm -hmm. wells like three years later um but again they started with esps and they initially reached out to me because i was i knew esps and uh so i came in was an esp guy helped did all their artificial lift strategy for these uh for that new area and then we did pilot a pilot test with high pressure gas lift to compare against ESP in Wolf Camp A and Wolf Camp B wells, because those are the gassier wells mm -hmm. out in the Midland Basin. Um, and then, uh, so I did that pilot, and then I wrote an SPE paper about it um, in 2018. And it was called like Single Point Gas Lift. Uh, oh, so, man, I, I forget what exactly what my own paper is called. It's how much you care about the paper. You <laughs> no, don't no, I what do it's care called. about it. It's basically like, uh, Single point high pressure gas lift uh, beats ESP and Permian Basin pilot test or something like that. Yeah. Right. And so basically we had a pad with a bunch of ESPs on it and a couple of high pressure gas lift wells. High pressure gas lift wells beat the ESP like huge. And then I was able at SM to roll this out like really, really uh, large scale on a, you know, uh, yeah. with our development and do it on all the Wolf Camp A's and Wolf Camp B's in that area. And, and uh, we ended up just beating IP records. Like I, like Midland Basin IP records with these with these high pressure gas lift setups. Wow. Um, and so when when I'm interacting with a customer, you know, I'm not just a compressor company coming in and being like, hey, here's a here's a package, take it and do what you want with it, right? Like I have enough context and have done this as a production engineer that I'm like, okay, they 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 ask for my feedback and they're like, so what do we need to do to make this successful? Like, and so I'm able to guide them through bottom hole design through the wellhead design flow lines all the way to the facility as a system to complement our high pressure gas lift unit to make this this project as 
as successful as it can be and, and maximize the results. Yeah. You know, that's really interesting when you have someone like you that's an engineer, that's a subject matter expert on a topic, solve this problem firsthand, develop a solution for it, and now being able to scale that uh, to other oil and gas companies. Mm -hmm. And it's like, hey, it's not just a compression company yeah. that you can just well serve up a compressor, booster on a skid, like you actually have domain expertise and the problem that they're trying to solve. And so that's super interesting. When did you start the company? It's, it's been a couple couple years now. Yeah, so uh, we started in 2020 in the depths of COVID yeah. and negative oil prices. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I relate to to that you know it's a awesome time to be starting a company and, and yep. i guess <laughs> yeah we built the first so i met my partners through the paper i wrote yeah that S, i mean honestly had i not written that sp paper this we probably wouldn't be here right now awesome i love to hear that you know because i tell everyone content is the highest form of leverage of yeah. our generation and it doesn't matter if you're writing a blog post if you're writing a white paper if you're recording a podcast uh good things come from creating content and so that's awesome to hear yeah that. so uh met my partners we uh pulled some cash built the first unit with our own money nice um on spec with no customer and then found a customer for it um in you know that was by the time we got that unit out it was uh spring 21 yeah and then got Pretty that timeline there yeah i mean you know get prototype built and field trial mm-hmm and then we got our first big order with an anchor customer and then um you know begged a bunch of friends and family for some money <laughs> and friends of friends and friends of family and Chuck Gates likes to call it friends families and fools <laughs> yeah exactly and we were we we're fortunate we had a lot of you know a lot of our and, and they're still all our equity partners they're all you know we're entrepreneurs OFS entrepreneurs themselves and yeah. have successful businesses now and and really liked what we were doing and and um you know and really took a chance on us and which you know there's something to be said for that as well you know digital wildcatters all of our capital that we've raised has come from uh angel investors in the energy industry and yeah it's good having champions on your side that you know they have networks, they have people that they can introduce you to, um, and then just insight on building successful companies. So I'm sure you all have seen some element mm -hmm. of that as well, um, going through that process. You know, talk a little bit about the, uh, what I'm curious about is, you know, build this prototype and you get it field tested, you know, year, year and a half, sounds like. Um, a lot of companies out there struggle with the field tests and the pilot. And, you know, EMPs, the way that they adopt technology is they don't give a shit how cool it sounds, mm -hmm. who else is using it. And so um, tell me a little bit about that. And you don't have to go into details about who the operator is or anything like that. No. But um, how are you able to to convince someone to to run this in a well? So, so by the time I we'd done this, uh, there had been a couple other compressor companies that started building a bunch of these same units off the back of you know, this success we'd had previously at where I'd worked before. Um, and through the paper that I wrote, it was starting to gain some, some interest and, and a lot of people were doing it. And so you have, you know, it, the oil field's a small place, all the, a bunch of these engineers all know each other at different companies. So you're having beers, you're at some event or some, and you're talking with your buddies. And one guy's like, somebody's tried high gas lift and somebody else hasn't, or they're talking about what they're doing at work. And so, um, the, it wasn't super radical by that point that, that it seemed like just something so far fetched that was hard to do. Like enough people were doing it that it wasn't too much of a, a hard sell. Mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of, uh, the work I have are, is just through relationships that I built over the years with, yeah with other friends, at, at old companies that are other engineers. Right. And so yeah. I think those relationships go really, really far. Yeah, I mean, that's one thing that's a constant in every business is the soft skills and the network. I mean, you have a guy like you, super technical engineer, subject matter expert on this <clears throat> on this operation, but ultimately none of that matters if you don't have a way to go commercialize it yeah. and sell it, right? And so yeah. being able to rely on the network that you've built over the years and you know, I think also just kind of speaks to, you know, uh, I love how you said that 
the market was actually already kind of accepting of it because of the white paper you wrote and people were talking and trying things like so something i think about a lot is sometimes you have to condition markets and condition industries and that white paper that you wrote was kind of setting that foundation for you a few years down the road mm -hmm. because hey guys we tr we've done this and had success with this and you start getting other people thinking about it and now they're accepting of the idea and so um when you go to take your product to market you know you're not having to fight that yeah that battle of educating them yep. and conditioning them for it uh, so another thing that made us super successful and I've, I've done a couple entrepreneurial ventures now in the in the ofs space is your partners that you go in, that you go into these these ventures with need to be really strong and um you all need to have your expertise and complement each other really well so that like one plus one is 10 yeah. or, right not one plus one is two yeah yeah we need exponential math here yeah uh, so so uh i have to give a lot of credit to the my partners because everybody uh within our company is really strong um operational field field backgrounds um, and has spent a lot of time, you know, providing services to oil companies or working at oil companies. So that's something that's contributed a lot to our success is just knowing what we're talking about in the field yeah, and being able to execute in the field and not screw up too badly in the field. Or if we do screw something up being like, okay, look, we messed up. We got this. We know what went wrong. This is the fix and we're fixing it right away. It's never going to happen again. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, Picking the right partners can make or break you, right? Yeah. So it has to be an overwhelmingly yes. You know, this is the right partner. Like you said, complementary skill sets. Um, that way, you know, when you're building a company, man, it's fucking hard. And you have to cover a I lot mean, of ground. Everybody says that, but you don't know until you've done it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's like, I even but, think sometimes I'm like, man, where would I be if I just like stayed at a cushy engineering job yeah. and just like got my salary and my my five weeks of PTO or whatever, my stock options, right? Like, like, but I think about, it, I'm like, I wouldn't trade that for anything, man. Like I'm having the best time of my life. I think about this all the time because you know, I'll be watching my friend's Instagram stories yeah. and you know, they're all investment bankers and they've done really well for themselves and always watch their Instagram stories. I'm like, God, am I an idiot? Like, <laughs> why do I want to build companies? Yeah. And, but it's the love of the game, right? And um, you know, hopefully, you have a a, a good uh, economic uh, impact or return uh, for your efforts. But yeah. you know, the um, I don't, I never like to talk like. There's a lot of people like, oh, you know, building businesses is hard. Like that's not part of my rhetoric. I don't like talk about that a lot. But it's funny. I was listening to these two podcasts from Mark Zuckerberg this weekend, and even he was talking about. It. He's like building businesses is it's tough and it's challenging and like the thing is is like you never reach a point where it's not hard or challenging mm -hmm. it's not like oh i've made it like it's a business is a living organism and continues to evolve and uh you have to iterate over over time and so um making sure that you have the right team in place to do that is uh super critical and, and just pick your hard i mean life's hard man <laughs> so, yeah <laughs> yeah that's <laughs> Life is life is hard. So yeah, I mean it, it's hard regardless. And so um, you know, I've had a couple of friends you know, recently, but overall, you know, throughout the years, I have a lot of engineers that come to me and want advice, like, hey, you know, should I go start a company? Should I join a startup? And you know, I had a real conversation with a friend the other day. You know, he just had a kid and he's at Chevron, and he's like, you know, here's my salary, here's my bonus, here's my pension, other benefits, and I was like say dude to be honest i said it's not a bad life no it's not. it's not a bad life there's lots of people that have worked at majors and become multimillionaires just from doing that and yep. you really don't have to work that hard <laughs> to, to make that happen i was like it's not a bad life i was like you know you really gotta ask yourself like why like you're not gonna go to a startup like it's not gonna be easy you gotta pull your pull your weight mm -hmm. who knows if you'll make any money from it um but those are the types of things that you have to ask yourself it's like why why am i doing this and yeah. so it's from a pure economic standpoint it's like hey 
the, the risk, so the risk adjusted of, safe way is to go get a good job. There's <laughs> a lot of economic pain before yeah. uh, hopefully you get the payout at the end yeah. of it, right? I've had a lot of economic pain. I'm hoping someday <laughs> that I don't have that economic yeah, pain, but go. it's not today. But man, this is super fascinating. Uh, I hope uh, one, you gave a masterclass on artificial lift. I was, uh, I was setting you up for an alley oop there and you took it <laughs> to the rim and dunked it. And so there's going to be some awesome content coming out of that on, on artificial, artificial lift 101. But you know, for you, as we're signing off here, what's your ask? Are you looking for customers? You're looking for investors? What's, what's on the path for you guys? Uh, uh, we're just at a point where we're starting to scale. Right. So I felt like I mean, we'd been talking for a couple of years about getting on the podcast, yeah, you no, and I. So, and, yeah, a couple of years in, in the making. And uh, I felt like it was the right time now. We're at, we're at the right scale and have established ourselves um, well enough that I think it's it's it was the right time to do something like this and kind of broad broadcast us yeah. out into the yeah out into the world. Oh no, man, this is exciting stuff. You know, I've um, fortunate thing for me is I always get to see these things. You know, from uh, you know, the sidelines and saw you in the early days and, um, you know, you can tell people, but I was always pushing you like, come on the podcast, yeah, come on yeah. the podcast. And you're like, not, not until we're ready. And so, yeah, I'm excited for you guys that you're Thanks. at that, you're at that point. And before we end this podcast, this is your time to shine your pitch. Tell me why people should use extreme over any other, uh, competitors out there. So our, our thesis is threefold, more oil production for less operating costs and fewer emissions. So what I mean by that, so more oil production using high pressure gas lift over ESPs or conventional gas lift, lower operating costs with our, um, our compressor package is called the Scout ULM. So lower operating costs with our Scout ULM. Um, we've done so much engineering in-house and manufacturing, our package is, is honestly the, the best package out there. And uh, our mechanical availability is the highest in the industry, as well as we get the highest throughput out of any competitor. So where one of our competitors would be at 1.8 million a day injection rate, we're, we're up to 3 million a day on our conventional two-stage machine. Wow. Almost and, double. Yeah, almost. almost double. And then um, third is our fewer, fewer emissions. So we have a patented... Um, technology called our ultra low methane technology. Um, we abbreviated it ULM. It's on the back, you know, our Scout ULM. And what that that ultra low methane technology does is is four things. Number one, it it eliminates um, fusion methane emissions by eliminating the use of process gas. So you don't, you know, we have electric starters. No no use of process gas on starting up. Um, We've gotten rid of uh, the use of process gas for pneumatic controls. So there's no process gas for pneumatic controls. Um, the second part is where we can't eliminate it, we capture it. So we capture fugitive methane emissions off both the compressor frame and the, the engine itself. So we capture those emissions and then feed it back into the intake to burn as fuel. And then uh, the, the third thing we do is um we uh we get rid of so we sustainable operating practices right so we usually when you a unit goes down you have to restart it you have to blow down the unit to atmosphere so we've gotten rid of that you don't blow down the unit to atmosphere you blow it down um through the blow case to where you dump like your liquids and stuff out of your scrubbers and so you no longer have are blowing, you know, straight methane out mm -hmm. into the atmosphere either. It's pretty cool to hear about how y'all are capturing methane and <laughs> dumping that back in um, as fuel as well. And yeah. So it sounds like some pretty intricate engineering and, there for. And honestly, like you, there's so many companies out there that they're identifying methane leaks, right? Whether mm -hmm. it's on tanks or flares or using cameras, like so many companies out there are identifying methane leaks. But like how many companies are actually doing something about the leaks, right? <laughs> yeah. So what we're doing is we're identifying the, the, the points where you have these fugitive methane emissions and we're capturing and eliminating them and, uh, and we're measuring them. And so when you get down to it, our, um, when you look at from like a CO2 base, CO2E basis, scope one plus scope two. So what does that mean? Scope two emissions are like the emissions associated with that specific thing. And then scope one emissions are upstream. So, mm -hmm. or no, it was the other way around. 
right? So scope one is that that your thing that you're using. Yeah, it's your direct. Yeah, yeah your direct emissions. And then yeah. scope two are the ones straight upstream. And so yeah. if you look in electric package, like a lot of people are electrifying compression right now because of emissions. When you look at an electric package, you have to, you can't just uh, ignore scope two emissions, right? You have to take in, you may not be having any direct combustion emissions on your package, but without the ULM technology, and if you have an electric compressor, you still have fugitive methane emissions from all the other components, mm -hmm. right? And then you have to take into consideration what the makeup of that grid power is. And yeah. when you look at both scope one and scope two emissions, our engine, normal natural gas engine 3306 NA package is within five, like five to eight percent of the scope one and scope two emissions CO2E as an electric package. Oh, wow. So, um, you know, that's it's fascinating hearing about that because the engineering in itself is already tough in terms of building a solution for a problem mm -hmm. in artificial lift, but then taking in the emissions factor as well. And love how you said it. There's a ton of people out there that are monitoring emissions and identifying emissions, but actually creating solutions that uh, capture them and solve them. And so super interesting to hear about how and you then, guys think about that. And then you get back to like, we talked about electrical infrastructure earlier with ESPs. Like one great thing about gas fired um, natural gas compressors is you don't need electricity. And so if you start setting all your, all your compressors now are electric, mm -hmm. you're dealing with the same electrical issues as you do with ESPs with power quality and power distribution mm. and building out the grid yeah. and things like that. And, and we, we are building a certain percentage of our fleet electric, mm -hmm. but in these remote locations, it's just not feasible. You can't put all electric compression out there. Yeah, so you, com combination. You of have it. to yeah. have a good, clean combustion option that is also you know uh so environmentally sustainable yeah so engineers that are listening to this where can they find extreme on the internet um if they're interested in y'all's uh um solution find you on linkedin find you online yeah find me brandon pronk on linkedin find extreme lift on linkedin it's spelled uh we spell a little bit weird it's x s t r e a m lift um, or if you're, extreme lift if you're watching video, here's a sticker of an extreme lift. There we'll, you go. we'll drop a uh, link into the show notes. Check it out. Find Brendan on uh, LinkedIn. Hopefully someday soon collide. Um, if y'all aren't over on collide, Brendan, thanks for coming on, man. Thanks, Colin. Appreciate it. Go, 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 go.